great. So today um, we're going to be uh, starting the first of a couple of lectures on nationalism and violence. Um, some of you may be sort of more attuned to the use of the term nationalism with regard to violent movements because that's typically when nationalism makes the news. It is one face of nationalism. It is not the only face, but we are going to be looking at, uh, at violent movements in the next a couple of lectures. And remember, last time we talked about secession, uh, secession and irredentism. And the question there was, why is it the case that some, but not all, uh, ethnic groups, national groups, <coughs> push for having their own state? So it's only, it's only a, a selection of the world's, let's say, 6,000 uh, ethnic groups that are uh, agitating for some kind of secession. So it's and we, we saw that some of the reasons behind that included uh, modernist factors and ethno-symbolist factors. So on the one hand, uh, mobilization of a group into associate membership of associations, density of telecommunication networks, and so on in the particular homeland, compactness of settlement of a group, all of those factors predict the likelihood of a group uh, pushing a self-determination claim. But on the other hand, also ethno-symbolist factors, such as myths and memories of having been independent in the past and having been conquered in the past, also were important when it came to predicting which groups might be involved in secession. Now, if you, want, if you take, you know, we, we looked at a, a series of groups that were involved in secession. What we now are going to look at is the subgroups, uh, the smaller circle of groups that are involved in violent secession. So not the Quebecois, not the Scots, not the Catalans, all of whom are pursuing, not the Flemish, who are pursuing a kind of peaceful uh, self-determination movement, but groups such as the uh, Tamils in Sri Lanka or um, the Aceh secession, uh, or even to some extent the Abkhazians and the Chechens who are involved in uh, relatively violent secessionist movements. So what is it that distinguishes one from the other? You can probably tell just from those examples, to some extent, you see more of the peaceful secessionist movements in democratic contexts. So the United Kingdom is a democracy, so therefore Scottish secession might be able to express itself in the form of a more peaceful process referendum. But it's clearly not the whole story. If you look at Spain, yes, it's a democracy. But on the other hand, we have uh, one movement, Catal uh, Catalan nationalism, which is relatively peaceful. Another movement, Basque nationalism, which has had, still continues to have, ETA, which is a violent wing. So the possibility for a violent nationalism exists also in democracy. But it might indicate to us that factors such as how wealthy a country is and whether it's a democracy are going to play a role in determining whether a movement expresses itself violently or not. Uh, so the Aceh, now this was some years ago now, and the Aceh secession has quieted down. It's no longer a, a security issue, no longer a violent threat. But that gives you an example of the first category of violence which we're going to deal with today, which is separatist violence. So last time we talked of self-determination and separatism. This is separatist violence. In other words, not all separatism is violent, but a, um, a minority of separatist movements are. The other category that we'll talk about in the second part of this lecture 
is genocide, which is more often perpetrated not by secessionist minorities, but more often by either dominant majority ethnic groups or the state. It's a different kind of uh, ethnic violence. Okay, so we get to this question of separatist violence. Again, this is uh, committed more by minority groups. It's minorities that tend to be seceding from a, a state or from majority. So it's minority-oriented, uh, often in pursuit of national self-determination, uh, occasionally driven by non-territorial grievances, such as being discriminated against or feeling that revenue from your particular region is flowing out to another region. So in a way, uh, sometimes the grievances are to do with discrimination and economics, but typically in pursuit of uh, national self-determination. Just a few numbers for you. You're probably already aware of the fact that um, pretty well every war in the world today is a war within a state. It's a civil war and not uh, the type of war that used to be more common prior to 1945, which is inter-state war. So intra-state, not, this is the kind of war that's taking place today rather than inter-state. That's not to say you don't have some. When Iraq invaded Kuwait in 1991, that was an inter-state war, but it was a very rare example of a post-Cold War inter-state war. So that's a very rare thing these days. But the intra-state Wars have become more common and really are the main source of violence, violent warfare in the war. Think of Congo, think of Iraq, think of former Yugoslavia, etc. The list goes on and on. That's the kind of conflict we're talking about. I'll just pick a year here, 1995. In 1995, for example, only one of 58 armed conflicts worldwide uh, involved two states fighting each other. They were basically all civil wars. Um, and roughly anywhere between sort of 60, 60 to 70 percent of those civil wars, of these intrastate wars, are uh, ethnic wars. So basically, interstate, eth intrastate ethnic wars are really what's driving global violent conflict today. Uh, there are also some intrastate religious wars, but that's. You can deal with that. You'll deal with that more in the second part of the course. We had a steady increase in the number of new conflicts between the end of the Second World War and 1990. So an, a rise in the number of civil wars in the world in that period, a very significant issue then in terms of global security. Uh, reaching a peak in 1991. Sorry, I'm going to pop back here. So that's partly the, 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 you know, this really is what brings urgency to this subject. I'll go on to describe a little bit about what's happened since 1991, where there's been somewhat of a lessening and decline in the number of those new conflicts <coughs> and in the number of civil wars. But um, suffice it to, for you to note that post-1945, dramatic increase in the number of ethnic civil wars. So we want to ask the question, again, what is the motivation behind this increase that we see post-1945, you can probably think of some things that are happening then, decolonization, breakup of the Soviet Union, and so on. Uh, and around those transition points, we tend to get a, quite a bit of violence. 
we're getting quite a bit of violence around the transition point of the Arab Spring. Again, any of those sorts of major structural changes do lead to, to conflict. Uh, but, and once again, we can divide the theories between the more modernist arguments, materialist arguments based upon uh, economic and political causes. And then, on the other hand, you have the more ethnosymbolist based on culture and history. And then also, to some extent, the primordialist, which we don't talk about as much, based upon, uh, if you like, a kind of instinctive tribalism that's psychological. Um, one of the proponents of primordialism, uh, Tatu van Hanen, did a uh, large-scale comparative statistical analysis. And this is becoming increasingly common in, um, in political science, is what you do is you take a a data set containing, say, 150 of the world's countries um, between the years, and this is looking at 1990 to 1996, and saying, on the one hand, we have how much ethnic conflict is going on, an index of how much ethnic conflict is going on in the country, and then along here, we have how ethnically diverse is the country. Uh, this is not referring so much to immigrant diversity, but referring to primary or indigenous diversity within a country. Uh, and so what he's, Van Hanen is arguing is there is this relationship between countries that are more ethnically diverse or fractionalized have more ethnic conflict. And that's a relative primordialist view. That is to say that the more ethnic groups you have, the more conflict you're going to get because people stick more or less with their group, cooperate with their own, and fight with others who don't belong to their own ethnic group. And so naturally, you have this relationship. Uh, of course, you can see the spread of dots is not tight around that line. So that's where a lot of other people come in and say, well, this relationship, how strong is it really? For Van Hanen, he says, well, the correlation between these two is, is 0.536, which would suggest that over half of the uh, variation in the amount of ethnic violence can be explained just by how many different ethnic groups or, or the relative degree of ethnic diversity in the country. Whereas how democratic a country is explains less than 10%. Uh, and the income per capita, the wealth of the country, uh, the average income in the country only explains about 20% on his model. Okay, now that is a model that is not, that has been contested by others Others have models which actually show uh, that income per head is more important than. This is the um, ethnic diversity index. So index of ethnic heterogeneity is the same as saying uh, degree or extent of ethnic diversity in a country. Uh, we're explaining over half of that variation in <coughs> violence. What, what, the, what follows from this for Van Hanen is that you really have to separate groups uh, because if you have large numbers of groups, then you're going to get fighting and violence between them. So either groups have to be assimilated to a dominant culture <coughs> or separated to remove the source of tension. That's very much a, uh, if you like, a primordialist account that sees identity as very rooted and fixed and political behavior as very uh, based upon ethnic nepotism. Uh, that is, you cooperate with your own and you fight against others. Um, there are, and the, we'll come to the more materialist theories that would take issue with them. Let's return briefly then to these trends in separatist violence. Um, we saw, for example, the uh, 
the in dramatic increase between 1945 and 1991 in the number of civil wars. Uh, a large number of these civil wars sprang from the decolonization process and the immediate aftermath of the decolonization process. So um, a country like Congo uh, gains its independence from Belgium in 1960, and then you have the Katanga secession. You have some kind of a civil war going on, struggle for power that follows in the wake of that decolonization. So that was accounting for a good deal of of the violence, or, or, or one source of the violence. Uh, but since 1991, the level of violence has declined to the level it was in 1960. So there's kind of been now a dramatic drop in violence between 1991 and 2003, uh, which is very, very much worth looking at. So you have this decline, which the Gurr and Marshall study notes, this decline in the global magnitude of armed conflict beginning after 1991, in the early 1990s, and actually continuing right through to 2003 when, I, when the, uh, the war in Afghanistan and in Iraq actually turned those numbers around and the magnitude of conflict began to, to rise again. However, between 1991 and 2003, we saw quite an impressive drop. Um, and this is partly because of the containment and settlement of quite a number of these, particularly post-colonial civil wars. And this is a, a graph provided by uh, the Gurr and Marshall study. And it, it just shows here, if you look at this blue trend in particular, this is the um, number of uh, conflicts settled or won. So the change in the number of wars. Uh, so you have a rising trend then up to a peak of, two, of 1991 uh, thereabouts in the number of new wars, and then you have uh, that decline which we talked about, which persists until 2003 and then starts to go up again a little bit. But, but Gurren Marshall point out that, in fact, there's been this quite, quite astounding decline post-1991 uh, in the number of wars, uh, civil wars. So that's worth noting. Um, how might this have happened? They look at uh, a number of different uh, cases of civil war as of 2003, and they sort of break down these conflicts into a number of stages. So that you have, for example, uh, people who are engaging in conventional protest politics or democratic politics in which they found 51 cases. Um, so what they did is they, they said, well, let's look at all of the cases where there are movements for national self-determination. Uh, in other words, what we looked at last time, secessionist movements. And they said, well, look, 51 are not engaged in anything violent. They're just engaged in conventional politics. So that's um, really the majority of these cases. If you look at the total number here, it's maybe, I don't know, maybe it's 100. So 50% are engaged in conventional. 29, a good chunk of them, such as Tibetans, are one, one case of this. So that gives you ex an example of the kind of group that is in this militant politics. So in fact, um, they are you know, involved in civil disobedience and mass protest, but not engaged in violence. And then you have the groups here, of which there's about 25, so roughly a quarter of the sample, that are engaged in violence. So only a quarter, really, uh, of the self-determination uh, cases in 2003 are engaged in active violence. And we have various levels. So you've got the Basques, which is this is an intermittent 
type of violence, the occasional bomb, the occasional assassination, not a high intense level of violence. Uh, 11 groups fitting into that pattern. Um, you then have something like Sri Lanka Tamils prior to the, to the defeat of the Tamils recently. So you had that sort of high level of hostility, basically a, an open civil war, you've got 10. Then you have the next phase, and this is where Gur sort of sees a, a, a ray of light, that you can get groups to, if you can get them to at least negotiate, even if they're still fighting, that combination of talking and fighting for cases, and then you have those that have ceased open hostilities, so they haven't yet signed up to a peace deal, but um, has ceased open hostilities. Think of Northern Ireland's the first ceasefire in 1994, the first IRA ceasefire. That would be an example of this. Cessation of, of open hostilities. Then you get a phase of contested agreement, uh, and then you have you know, uncontested and implemented agreement. And sometimes you have groups which are given independence, like South Sudan. We, we can imagine that the conflict between the North and South in Sudan is maybe going to be less intense now that South Sudan has got its independence. And so, and in fact, there are some people that argue that, in fact, a lot of the reason the civil war ends is because one side wins. Uh, it's a very contentious claim, um, but it is a claim that say, well, South Sudan got its independence, or uh, Sri Lanka defeated the Tamils. Maybe the Tamils are going to come back and fight another day. So it's not clear that that's the case. But um, independence is one way in which these conflicts can end. Uh, and so, yes, there's been a growing number of conflicts that have been contained or settled in the last, let's say, well, in the period 91 to 2003. So part of the explanation, at least in terms of uh, diffusing the violence for Gur, is this idea that elite accommodation, that is, the leaders of the uh, respective ethnic groups have come to an accommodation as to how they're going to share power. It might be that one ethnic group gets a certain amount of posts in the military or in the civil service, uh, or they agree to share power in the legislature, for example. Uh, and a number of cases are listed here. Uh, you have, and then we'll get to this in a minute, that when it comes to ethnic violence, it's not just the case that you have a grievance, that you're mad at the state. Uh, it's, it's, there are many more factors that have to come into play before a group can engage in violent rebellion. It must have a certain number of resources, capacity to raise uh, men and material. Um, so that rebel, uh, rebellion capacity <coughs> is very important. Um, the other thing about Gurren Moors, they don't pay much attention to the sort of ethno-symbolic side, uh, and others fault them for that, that they're not really focusing on uh, prejudices of, against other groups, such as the way the Tutsi uh, thought of the Hutus, for example, as an inferior race, or, for example, um, memories of, of having been conquered or lost independence and so on. Um, okay. So I'm just going to go through this. We've talked about conflict termination. This is all part of Gurren Moore's argument about why uh, quite a number of conflicts were contained or ended in the 1990s. Um, part, another aspect of the Gur uh, argument is really that democracy is very important. We just saw, or I, when I mentioned about the fact that a lot of the secessionist movements in Europe are relatively peaceful, 
many more of those in South Asia and in Sub-Saharan Africa are violent. Part of the explanation is the greater prevalence of liberal democracy uh, in, in the Western European context. It's not the only factor, but it is one factor. One of the ways democracy can help uh, alleviate ethnic conflict is because uh, if you have a way of expressing your grievances against the state through your local political parties, through the media, then that can perhaps draw off some of that grievance. So you can express your grievance through democratic channels as opposed to and through also nonviolent protests. Uh, whereas if there is no democracy, then the only route open to you is to express that uh, violently or outside formal channels. Uh, but of course, part of the democratization process depends upon how, much, how strong the state is. If you have a weak state like Somalia, then it doesn't really matter if a little part of it is democratic. Actually, um, it's not going to make much difference. You need to have a state that's penetrated deeply into all spheres of, of life and that is democratic. So that combination seems to make it easier for groups to express their grievances in a uh, nonviolent manner. Uh, and I won't say too much about this. this is kind of a bit beyond this lecture, this issue of special kinds of democracies that are not, not sort of a Westminster first past the post, but there are different types of democracy that you can come to. Federalism is one form of consociational democracy that involve power sharing on the basis of groups rather than individuals. But anyhow. The other issue that's raised also um, and is raised by Fearon and Leighton in the article also on the reading list is the role of uh, gross national product of, of income per capita. As countries get wealthier, as people get, as poverty is alleviated, as underdevelopment is alleviated, uh, that too can have an effect on dampening down the possibilities for violent conflict. Uh, and there's a very lively debate, again, between the sort of more materialist, modernist type writers and the more primordialist or ethno-symbolist writers over which are the key factors in terms of ethnic violence. Uh, the ethno-symbolist and primordialist might would put less emphasis on rising income and democracy as being magic bullets for ending um, violent conflict. Uh, the role of democracy is an important one. You can see on this graph here that the number of democracies in light blue, starting in 1950, the number of countries that are dem democratic has been rising uh, quite dramatically. And of course, in the Arab world now, there are a few more democracies added to that total. And so the trend towards greater democratization in the world, at the same time, the decline in uh, autocracies such as Gaddafi's Libya and Saddam's Iraq, that has been going on as well. So you've had particularly in Sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, Asia, uh, a big growth in democracy. But you've also had a growth in this in between the red group, which is called the anocracy, which is something between a, a democracy and an autocracy. And these are actually the most risky in terms of violence. So there's a link here in the sense that the, the anocracies, which have also increased, you'll see from the 1990s, and this line, if we continue that, this more or less continues in a straight direction, and this up this way as we get into, say, 2008-9. Uh, so there's a, an increase in the number of these relatively unstable and relatively risk-prone uh, intermediate uh, anocracies. And you can see a, 
map here that shows that a lot of those anocracies are located in, uh, on the African continent, sub-Saharan Africa. Um, autocracy, uh, more taking place in, in East Asia. Now, of course, this has changed somewhat since 2003. I don't want to expect you to understand this uh, other than to show you this is a kind of uh, quantitative comparative politics that some political science do. Uh, this is coming from the Gur, um, the Gur book. And what, what he's arguing is if, if we're to explain what he calls rebellion, which is violent, think of rebellion as violent secession. So to explain violent secession, he says, well, the key here, anything that's got a star on it is important. And he says, one is how much uh, are there other violent secessionist movements taking place in states around the existing state. So if there is uh, a violent secessionist movement in, I don't know, let's say Cote d'Ivoire, and there's a violent secessionist movement next door in Burkina Faso, for example, that, that would make it more likely you'd get violent secession in Cote d'Ivoire. So that, uh, that's one factor. Another is this mobilization, which we talked about last time. Um, to what extent are the members of these groups mobilized into associations, even if they've got nothing to do with secession? Just being members of associations, being connected to each other, is very important as to whether a group, because it's not just whether a group has a grievance against the state, it's whether they have the ability, because they can be a, a poor peasant, a group of poor peasants can be very upset at their condition, but they, can, they may have no capacity to rebel. So you have to factor in their ability to organize, to have enough money, to have support from, from neighbors, ethnic kin in neighboring states. All of those things are important for a group to move from just being uh, repressed to actually being able to rebel. So you have to actually have those, uh, that mobilization. So they have, in terms of explaining mobilization, I'll now move ahead, sorry, to move back. Um, just to put this in a more clear diagram. Um, so for example, uh, Gur says, well, a group um, that has military support from a, former, uh, from a foreign government. So a group that's trying to secede and that has military support from a foreign government is 65% more likely to use violence, to, to be a violent uh, movement. So again, that points to external military support as being very important. Um, the other, another uh, factor that's quite important is once ethnic violent conflicts get started, they tend to be hard to stop. In other words, there's a, an effect whereby uh, once, a, once a movement catches fire, it has a certain momentum. And so 77% of groups that have a a persistent high-level rebellion in the past um, are, oh, sorry, that makes a group 77% more likely to secede. So the fact of <coughs> either having had a violent secessionist movement in the past or, in fact, whether there was, that movement is ongoing means that it's more likely to continue. So there's a certain degree of, uh, as I said, of momentum to these conflicts. They have a duration. So that's why there's a very, it's very important to try and prevent conflicts catching fire and starting. If you can get them before they start, that's very important. Once they've started, there's a whole new dynamic that kicks in that can keep the conflict going. A whole set of actors that have a stake in uh, keeping that conflict 
moving. Uh, there are also other important factors here which are mentioned. Um, uh, so, for example, political restrictions. One of, one of the findings, though, that is very interesting is uh, the degree of state repression of a group does not actually correlate with its increased tendency to violence. So a state that cracks down, China cracking down on Tibet, uh, actually, if you look through the data, does not seem to lead immediately to uh, rebellion and violence amongst, say, the Tibetans. And what's that? what that's saying is that um, often where a state has a very strong capacity to repress the rebels, it can be effective in doing so. So state where you have a very powerful state like China, that can deter the Tibetans and Uyghurs from mounting an, a, a violent open rebellion. And their re repression of these groups does not lead those groups to become more violent. Now, you could argue, well, what that repression does is it stores up. So groups remember the, the violence that the state uh, executed against them. And so at some later date, they'll take it out on the state. That could be the case. So these types of studies have weaknesses in that they can't account for that kind of delayed effect. We just don't know what the Tamils on Sri Lanka are going to do in the future. We know that there's a very bad taste in their mouths from what the Sri Lankan government has done to them. But it is true that they're not fighting right now. So it is true that there is a, a no link. Uh, Gurren Harf's uh, book, which is in the reading, uh, required reading today, therefore has this model. What we're trying to explain is this box over here, violent rebellion, violent ethnic secession. And they say, well, um, how do we explain that? Well, one of the most important proximate or the most important antecedent factors of, for explaining violent secession is the, the group's capacity to mobilize for violent warfare with the state. So it, this is important, this idea of a group having the capacity to mobilize its members for collective action in the form of civil war. But how do you get to this phase? He says, well, there's actually quite a complex interaction between these four boxes. So those grievances I talked about, about the Tibetans and Uyghurs in China, which have, have not led to violence, uh, but might be leading to those groups becoming better organized around a common set of political demands. So there is a link statistically established between grievances and mobilization. And then subsequent to that, you can get, once that mobilization takes place, sometime in the future you may get this violent rebellion of the Tibetans or the Uyghurs. Uh, and that rebellion can incur in, in turn lead the state to repress and they, they draw a link between repression. State repression does not lead to automatically direct. So there is no arrow going from state repression to violence. But there is an arrow going indirectly from repression to mo more mobilization and then into rebellion. So if you imagine Northern Ireland, it could be the case that the Northern Ireland government in repressing, or in subsequently the British Army, repressing the, uh, the civil rights movement and then the IRA then leading to more mobilization. So that could be, that's sort of the way they're conceiving of this relationship between um, violence. I'm going to skip this here for a minute. Um, so we'll just come to a conclusion on separatist violence. The other, the other one thing I want to mention which we'll talk about next time is that when it comes to violent secessionist movements, these are typically carried out not by 
all members of the group, but typically by uh, militias, by rebel, rebel armies that are operating, that, that involve only a small proportion of the group. So the IRA was not all Catholics in Northern Ireland. It was a small, small sample. It was a very, in fact, extremely small group uh, that was carrying out these attacks. However, often these groups can hide amongst their co-ethnics. And it raises the question, first, so, so when it comes to ethnic violence, it's small groups of lightly armed men typically hiding out in rough terrain. Uh, so there is also a link between uh, areas that are rural and that have rugged terrain. Um, those sorts of areas tend to incubate violent rebel movements. Violence, civil wars tend to take place in the countryside rather than in urban areas. So there's also, again, these other links which are more to do with the military side. Um, but they raise an important question for theory because the question then becomes, well, what is the connection between these small groups of um, violent men that are carrying out you know, the war in Kashmir or the war in Northern Ireland uh, and the, the population they claim to represent? Even at the height of the conflict in Northern Ireland, no more than about 10, maybe 20% of the outside of Northern Irish Catholics supported the IRA. Um, in surveys and, and in general uh, research. So it's only a minority that even supported the IRA. So the counter-argument is that, well, it was the IRA was just a, a bunch of rogue individuals that were really didn't give a damn about even the support of the Northern Irish Catholic population that they claimed to represent. They just had their loyalty to themselves, and they operated almost as a, as a guerrilla rogue unit. Uh, and, and if that's the case, then addressing the grievances of the Northern Irish Catholic population uh, might not be enough to, to, end, to end that civil war. It's a bit like uh, the way Al-Qaeda was conceived. The Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, 2006, was seen as just a bunch of uh, Arab Afghans who'd come back from Afghanistan who were loyal to each other, had no support in the Saudi population. Uh, so what that means that is that if you crush and bust this sort of a group militarily, that's not going to lead to further recruitment from the population. However, if the population supports them, if you try and crush a movement like that, then that's going to lead to a lot of um, uh, opposition within the population and a renewal and, and recruitment of new members to, to, those, um, to those violent movements. So it's very important practically for <coughs> counterinsurgency how you conceive of these movements. Uh, just to conclude then on separatist violence, uh, the role of grievances, that is, being discriminated against or repressed by the state, is important, but it's not directly important in causing ethnic violence. It acts indirectly by stimulating mobilization of a group, a group to become better organized. Once a group is well organized, it can then move to the conflict phase. So that mobilization factor is very important in explaining the subsequent move to violence. And then finally, as Gerr points out, the post-1991 containment of conflict partly has to do with democratization, which helps these movements express their aims nonviolently, also <coughs> partly with international intervention. So there has been a positive trend, uh, at least between 1991 and 2003, not so positive since 2003, but still uh, 
positive containment of conflict. In the last next section of the uh, lecture, we're going to look at genocide, which is a different category of violence, um, such as the Darfur or the Holocaust uh, conflicts. Genocide also is a species of ethnic violence. Not, it doesn't have to be ethnic. It can sometimes involve other types um, of motivation. So it could be political rather than ethnic. But for many authors such as Brendan O'Leary uh, and John McGarry, genocide isn't explicitly, it has ethnicity woven into its definition. So it is really about eliminating a particular ethnic group violently. Um, so a means for eliminating ethnic differences through, in his words, the systematic mass killing of an ethnic collectivity, however defined. Um, even if it isn't successful entirely, the attempt, uh, not just the attempt, but the partial killing of a collectivity, uh, simply for being a member of that ethnic group is what defines genocide. And so this would be seen as distinct from, say, the expulsion of a population uh, as took place, for example, in, uh, in the Caucasus in the 19th century. The Russian state expelled uh, a number of different groups, such as the Circassians. That kind of an expulsion wouldn't be deemed a genocide, although it must be said that often expulsion and genocide are two techniques that are used together. Uh, so ethnic cleansing and genocide in the conflict in the former Yugoslavia were both <coughs> techniques that were used. Uh, there's also what some writers draw a distinction between genocide and what they term politicide, which is mass killing of political opponents, as in, in the case with Stalin or Pol Pot in, the, in Cambodia, uh, Saddam Hussein, although that had an ethnic complexion in the sense that the Sunnis were less targeted than Shia and Kurds. Uh, so that might be another distinction that we might be mindful of. The same sort of question that we looked at in terms of secessionist violence, is it about material factors? Is that what's driving the conflict, or is it more ideas, culture, and so on? Uh, that's important, also with regard to genocide. Uh, if we think of the more modernist, instrumentalist type of argument, for genocide. This would place a lot of emphasis on material, rational considerations on the part particularly of colonial uh, settler societies. So if you think of uh, aboriginals in Australia or native Indians in the American West as occupying land or resources that the settlers and the government want, so they're kind of in the way of this resource exploitation. So their killing would be simply to acquire the resources. So it would be materially driven. Um, land would be a, a key element in this. Whereas the ideological, the more, uh, the ideological impetus, which is more based, for example, on ethnic prejudices and stereotypes, might be stronger in uh, other types of genocide that take place in more urbanized, modern contexts, such as Nazi Germany. Um, so in this modern context, and incidentally, Rwanda would be considered another example of this modern context of where um, the majority and the minority are highly integrated and assimilated. And it's not as much about getting at their resources, also, although there would also be 
material reasons, as we saw, for example, with the Nazis, there are material reasons as well that they wanted to exterminate the Jews, but um, there would be a stronger ideological aspect. And then finally, you have also got political considerations. So let's talk about that in a bit more detail. Um, hang on, I'll just whip through. I'll get back to these other factors in a moment. So this question then of material factors and the role they played in these colonial genocides. So for example, the Battle of Wounded Knee taking place in the American West, uh, considerable loss of native Indian lives. Why? Well, because the government is trying to um, take this territory for economic reasons. So Palmer, in the article, and it's on the reading list, tries to draw this distinction between the colonial-type genocide and the more modern-type genocide. So what are the features of the colonial-type genocide? Well, one is that the settlers um, are not very numerous. They have limited resources in terms of um, confronting the natives. So you think of small numbers of uh, white settlers in the American West or in Australia confronting larger numbers of natives. So settlers a minority, whereas if you think of the Nazi Germany situation, the perpetrators are a majority, whereas in this case they may often be in the minority, in the colonial type genocide. The culture of natives, and as we can think of aboriginals in Australia, but also if we think of colo uh, colonialism in Africa, for example, where small numbers of colonists in the midst of much larger numbers <coughs> of natives. Uh, Belgian Congo would be another case. Southwest Africa, another case. Uh, vast difference between the culture of the colonizers and the culture of the natives. So they come from very different worlds culturally. Uh, there isn't a history of bad blood and ancient hatred, really, between the colonizers and colonized. That may develop over time. But certainly at, at point of first contact and early settlement, that doesn't exist. So you can't really make an argument that it's an ethno-symbolically driven conflict, that, that, that the aboriginals were wiped out because of a history of hatred between the, the whites and the aboriginals. There just wasn't that history when they first arrived. Uh, other features of the colonial genocide, the, um, the colonial states may have a weak reach on the frontier. So the colony may have a very limited power, particularly in distant areas that it has control over. Uh, the British in Sudan might not have had a lot of power because they had very few men and very, a very weak uh, state structure. So the genocide then is not so much committed by a powerful state, as in Nazi Germany, for example, but by, often by private initiative of settlers. Uh, they may have, however, tacit support from the state, which could be important in emboldening or restraining the settlers from engaging in violence. And that's an important division, because sometimes you actually get the center of the state, which is less keen on violence against natives, and you have the settlers who are more, who are out on the frontier, who, who are more keen on it. That was the situation in the United States through much of the 18th, 19th centuries, where the settlers were the, really the ones pushing for uh, you know, retaliation against the natives, killing uh, to acquire land, and so on. And it was 
the elites in the cities who were trying to restrain them and say, trying to say, well, we have to honor these treaties with the Indians. We can't go about, uh, you know, we can't just be barbaric and go on killing. And so there's this tension between, uh, in the US at least, the East Coast elites and um, the representatives of the frontier settlers, such as the uh, Andrew Jackson and the early Democrats. You contrast the colonial type of genocide with the more modern type. In contrast to the colonial type genocide, here in the modern type of genocide in, in which think of, for example, uh, Nazi Germany, Turks, Armenians, Darfur, Rwanda, so on. In those sorts of genocide, you have a very powerful state commanding resources, weaponry, uh, communications, so on, often a totalitarian state. So that's in, very, in stark contrast to a weak state in, say, Belgian Congo or in the American West, where the reach of the state uh, was not very powerful. You then have, again, in the colonial type genocide, the state's involvement might not have been explicit. It might have been there, but it might not have been explicit. It might have just been private initiative of settlers, whereas the modern type, the state is very much the, in the driver's seat uh, when it comes to stoking up um, genocide. There's a link, too, between genocide and a crisis of the state, uh, the crisis of the state, and perhaps best exemplified by the crisis in the German state between the wars. Uh, war and this is another point that's made. War is often a cover for genocide. So if a lot of people are being killed, there's a mass mobilization, mass, uh, a lot of people are armed, then it's easier to, you know, genocides can go more unnoticed. So war is a precipitant or enabler of genocide. If there's a war going on in Congo, the Democratic Republic of Congo, then genocide is more, it's easier for that kind of a genocide to take place. Also, the cultural difference between the, ki the uh, killers and those who are being targeted is often very, very minor. It's what Sigmund Freud called the narcissism of minor differences. And what he's saying is, well, the difference between a, a German who is Christian and a German who is a Jew culturally is pretty small. They speak the same language. They sound the same, um, many of the same cultural reference points. So, the shared, and similarly with Tutu, or Hutu and Tutsi, very similar culture. Similarly with uh, Serbs and Muslims in former Yugoslavia, very similar culturally. It's not like this, the white settlers and the native Indians where there's a vast gulf in terms of culture. Um, so that is a difference between the two types. Uh, victims typically are minorities, i.e. Jews, gypsies as examples. Um, even the Tutsi can be grouped in this category. Groups that are minorities rather than, as in the case of colonial genocide, it's typically the native ma majority that is targeted. And also in the modern type, some of those ethno-symbolic factors can come into play and play a, a bigger role. That is, uh, long-held prejudices, long-held histories of bad blood in the case of the former Yugoslavia, memories of what went on during the Second World War, the, the uh, atrocities perpetrated by the Croats on the Serbs, uh, that kind of a, a myth and memory plays a bigger role in the modern type of 
genocide, or perhaps uh, perceptions about the other group. And then finally, the nature of the killing as being not isolated incidents taking place on a frontier, but more premeditated, targeted, concentrated killing. So it brings in the role of ideology, particularly in the modern genocide. Less, there is also an ideology of, of, of racism and of, uh, let's just say, survival of the fittest, social Darwinism that played a role in the colonial genocides as well. So it's not to say ideology was absent from the colonial type of genocide, but perhaps it is more potent in the modern form of genocide. So this idea of a totalizing and exclusive view that the minority is in some way a parasite on the body politic. So the minorities can be dehumanized. So metaphors such as the way uh, the Hutu conceptualized the Tutsi as cockroaches. So that dehumanization of the, the enemy using uh, metaphors like, such as a rat in the Nazi case using the, the metaphor of rat for Jews to try and dehumanize the minority and make people more willing to engage in violence against them. Uh, there tends to also to be an exaggerated fear of the threat posed by victim groups such as the Armenians in um, uh, Ottoman Turkey, uh, for example, that that was part of this idea of the exaggerated fear that in some way the Armenians were going to be the agent by which the, the Western powers in Russia were going to crush um, the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and there are these ideologies that, that the group's extinction is in some way the playing out of an inevitable force of history, or it's natural that white settlers will supersede and wipe out the native population, because that's just the way uh, the survival of the fittest, or whatever ideology works. Uh, or it could be a religious, religious divine right um, to say that, well, in the Bible, they're clearly the Canaanites were exterminated to make way for the Israelites, and that is a justification for us uh, to act in the same way. So you can have also religious scientific justifications, such as social Darwinism or scientific racism. So that is sort of um, makes it easier for genocide to be carried out. Uh, so ideology then can play a key role. I mentioned also the, the role of war. War, if war is going on, uh, that so often serves as a cover under which genocide can take place. So it obscures the visibility of genocidal operations. If you're killing as part of war, it's easier to, you know, to have a camp where a certain amount of killing is going on. Whereas if it was a peacetime situation, it's, it's more glaring. Uh, warfare also makes it harder for external actors to, to know what's going on and to intervene in a conflict. Um, victims can be portrayed as enemies, so if we are fighting another country and you know, maybe the Jews, if the Germans are fighting another country, maybe it's the case that the Jews are, uh, can be scapegoated as a fifth column that's weakening or in, in league with the enemy. Um, there's also a mass mobilization of resources into the state during wartime. So you have rationing, you have mass mobilization of men and material. And the construction of a vast war machine, which can be turned to other uses besides attacking your enemies, you might decide to turn it in on internal uh, enemies, minorities. Um, 
And so all of the mobilizations and the escalations that take place, the militarization of war makes it easier to carry out uh, ideologies. So you have a whole command structure whereby soldiers take orders from officers who take orders from their superiors. So you could have this, this, this hierarchical structure in which it may just be Adolf Hitler uh, that wants to exterminate the Jews, but if he's in charge and controlling the whole machinery, those orders will then filter down through um, to those people who carry out. Now, others have said, well, it's not just Adolf Hitler. It was per pervasive beliefs that pervaded the entire society. Others say, no, in fact, it was just the, the high command and that others weren't so interested. But um, that's sort of another debate that we can have when it comes to genocide is to what extent that popular that's based on popularly held beliefs, or to what extent it's just the execution of the views of a particular elite. Uh, a number of other international elements, which we haven't talked about, play a role here as well. Uh, one is that uh, rivalry, for example, uh, political rivalry between the major powers of Europe was one of the forces that spawned a colonial acquisition. So the French. Um, acquiring Algeria in 1830 because they'd, uh, you know, in the wake of their defeat in the Napoleonic Wars, or in the wake of their defeat in 1871 by Prussia, they had made it, they implemented colonization and settlement in Algeria. Uh, sometimes co uh, colonialism can be a vector for a state to demonstrate its power. Uh, so for example, the role of the Germans in Southwest Africa Italians in Ethiopia, and so on. Uh, the international can sometimes serve to restrain violence as well, however. Um, so global human rights concerns were involved in um, NATO action in the bombing of Serbia to protect Kosovo Albanians. So that, too, international factors can sometimes restrain uh, genocide as well. And also there can be alliances between groups that might be targeted such as perhaps the Kurds, and um, on the other hand, international actors such as the West. So you can have that as a protective barrier between a group that might want to engage in genocide. Um, I'm just going to move quite quickly through. Actually, I'm going to skip this last section, which is to say that sometimes you can have rivalries within uh, a nation state, say between the military and the government. Uh, or between factions within the government that can offer an opening for zealots to take control, uh, particular units in the Japanese army in Manchuria, for example, which were very much behind the Japanese atrocities that took place in that part of China. Um, so that division domestically can also be exploited by uh, particular factions that are genocidal in nature. Uh, and we saw that also in the former Yugoslavia with particular factions of Serb politicians that were involved in that. Um, last slide, does genocide end ethnic conflict? Uh, the answer generally is no, partly through this mechanism of storing up hatreds. <coughs> so that memory of genocide can carry over into, into a subsequent generation and then be expressed in the form of violence. Um, OK. Um, we'll see uh, the first group upstairs in about 10 minutes. Thanks.